this episode of Rock and Roll Blueprints, Anthony Corder and Keith Douglas of Tour Tour sit down to discuss Tour Tour's debut record, Surprise Attack. Let's talk about Surprise Attack. Now that record, I, I'm sure you guys know, but did you, I didn't realize that was almost 34 years ago that came out. That's insane. Isn't that yeah. crazy? <laughs> it, right? And I was Keith, thinking about have I known it. you that long? It's hard to believe, man. <laughs> I mean, it, it, on one hand, it seems like a million years ago, and on another hand, it just seems like we were just kind of in there experiencing it, you know? It's just wild. But. It doesn't seem like that time goes that fast. I mean, if you think about it, when that album came out, if we went back 35, 34 years, it would have been around 1955. Just oh, my God. Like, you know? <laughs> <laughs> wow. It's crazy. But yeah, so that came out in 1989, um, went to number 47 on Billboard's 200 charts, which is pretty darn good, I would say. It's awesome. It's awesome. Um, yeah. You had three singles off there, Walking Shoes, uh, Guilty, and Phantom Rider, correct? Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Um, what do you, I mean, what do you remember the first day going in to record that? Because you guys were pretty green at that time. We were, yes. um, you know, we had a little bit of studio experience and, um, you know, we've told the story a million times, but we, we won a battle of the bands contest and, and we got some recording time at Ardent Studios, which, you know, was a huge deal to us. And, you know, and so of course they let us come in on like a Sunday afternoon when the studio was empty and, you know, the guy that we worked with there who was working his way up, you know, uh, into the ranks there at Ardent was Paul Ebersold. And he worked with us that first day. And I think we worked on Phantom Rider, didn't we, Anthony? Yeah. As a demo, just to, you know, that's what we spent our day on. And he put some piano on it and we were all just kind of really clicking, you know. If I did my research correctly, Phantom Rider, you guys had had that, and it had some local airplay prior to the signing and the release of that record, right? Yeah, that was on. That was before Surprise Attack. That we did a. We were putting together like an EP. Uh, we had done some some studio work, like Keith said. There was a guy, Steve Howe, uh, that had been working with us. He had a powerhouse studio. It was kind of like in his backyard, and uh, <laughs> he was the first guy that talked to us about the groove, man. We walked in and everybody in the band was doing a solo. I was screaming the highest note I could hit. Keith oh, was, no. you know, ripping a rip guitar riff. Patrick was trying to play like Getty Lee and John was hitting every roto time and floor time. And he <laughs> said, Hey, I just want to get y'all locked in. And we were like, he goes, I want y'all to groove. We're going to get y'all. And we were like, what you talking, you know, what are you talking about? And so immediately he made an adjustment and got Patrick and John kind of going on the right place. And he got me and Keith to kind of, or at least, all of us kind of to tone down for a minute, play together. We were so excited. I mean, being in a studio and stuff was just freaking us. We didn't have all the technology everybody's got nowadays and getting in there and being able to hear yourself. You know, we weren't in a rehearsal place and all on top of each other and everything. Uh, Jody Stevens, that drummer for Big Star, was working at Ardent and he was the contact. He was the guy that was doing kind of the, the artist pitching and stuff. And so he helped us get signed to AM. They helped us showcase. You know, we did four or five showcases and it was pretty exciting, y'all. Man, we were just a garage band. We didn't know what was going on. We were we just wanted to play music. We were having a great time. We were partying a lot and, and having a good time. Man. 
we were probably I was probably seventeen or eighteen. Keith, so you, yeah, you were yeah. real young when when the opportunity. We were little, you know. And John Fry, the, the owner of the studio, ended up uh, becoming like a kind of a father figure to our band. He had he had been very successful in the music industry with the studio, and you know he was a few. They were waves down the road from us, and so they were kind of talking us through you know, what it might look like to work with people in the industry. <laughs> really what he did from totally being honest is he walked in a conference room with us and he put a, he drew a dot on the wall and he said, this is you. And he drew a big circle around it and went, this is everybody else that's going to be digging in your pocket. And basically that was the conversation <laughs> that we were having. And we went, great. Where do we sign up? Can we go you know, yeah. play our music and record and everything? Man, it was just, it was an incredible learning experience. They were super talented. Joe Hardy signed on. It gave us credibility in the industry. He had had a bunch of success with ZZ Top and and multiple other bands. And so he kind of gives the cred in the industry where people were kind of perked up. They said, hey, what's, what's this neat thing Joe's working on? It's some little bunch of kids from Memphis. And, and Paul, like Keith said, was cutting his teeth. You know, he was kind of making a name for himself. So he was out, you know, hustling and grinding and, and um uh, we just had a ball, man. We worked on so many, I don't know, Keith, you probably remember, we probably wrote about 60 or 70 songs for that first record. Yeah, I was going to yeah, say, I how many songs did you have going into making that record? I, I don't even really remember. I mean, we had a good, we had a lot of original tunes that never, you know, once they never made Surprise Attack, we just kind of never revisited a lot of those. I mean, uh, we, you, didn't, you didn't do like Van Halen does and dig no, them back. no. <laughs> Uh, no, uh, but you know, I also something to go along with what Anthony was saying, a big part of that, of that Memphis music scene was, uh, this DJ Malcolm Riker, who from a station that broadcast out of Ar West Memphis, Arkansas, and he started doing a one hour locals bands, you know, music show. And it just, it, it kind of helped the whole scene kind of evolve. And, you know, he played the crap out of our original version of Phantom Rider. And, you know. How much different did the, the original version to what became the album version? How, how different was it? I think the song was probably about the same. Was it, Ant? Anthony wrote that this, one. The, the arrangement was the same. The production was different. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you know, number one, we just had much more budget, more time. We weren't in there just, you know, trying to get in, knock it out and have time to mix. But we put like background backing vocals and all that that wasn't on it. It was it was much more, you know, slicked up for the mm -hmm. A&M version. It's, uh, and we had edits. I, I was telling Joe before you got on, it's such a interesting vocal melody. Uh, it doesn't go. Yeah. With the, the the chord progression and the song leads you where you think it's going to go somewhere else. And, uh, it, and over and over again, I remember hearing it back in the day and then listening to it again today, I remembering, uh, it's just interesting where most people follow the, the, uh, the gen generic stuff. You, you really went out on a limb with that vocal melody. I thought, I thought it was, it was very interesting. Yeah. It was funny going back and listening to it. I, you know, I was trying to figure stuff out singing. I, I, it was a huge learning experience being in the studio and having time to mess around and stuff. I wrote that with a really good friend of mine, Thomas Howard. Um, and I tell this story all the time. He he lived in my neighborhood. He wasn't in the band, but he became like one of our 
insiders, you know, one of the, our, yeah. our, our crew, he was around a lot and we lived in the same neighborhood. He used to walk, he had this <laughs> little black dog, Fred, he used to walk him up the street every night and he would smoke a cigarette when the, he was walking the dog, you know, and I lived in a little ranch house up the street from him and I kicked the screen out of my window. So I would see his, you know, the cherry of a cigarette coming up the sidewalk and I'd go out, you know, Yeah. and he was, he was way into, um, prog- more progressive rock. He loved Rush and Yes. And I was more like Zeppelin and Janis Joplin stuff. So we kind of had a rub. We were always kind of bickering back and forth about music and stuff. And I remember sitting on the edge of the bed strumming that chord. He was really, um, he was a great lyricist. Like he had just stacks of journals and poetry and all kinds of stuff that he had in his room. And he said things in a way that I would never come up with it on my own. So he was, we were, it was fun to collaborate with him because we're really different. And I remember I had the I would come up with melodies and music a lot of times, and then we would find some of his words. But on this one, we were just talking. I remember that intro chord just sitting on the edge of my bed, going, "I wonder what this is going to be." You know, I can remember it just right. like yesterday, sitting there and strumming it. And we were just talking. You know, we would go outside and just stare at the stars and you know dream. And we were just talking about music and stuff. And we were talking about celebrating life. You know, we we're young and we we're excited and we we're thinking about all the things that life had in store for us and our friends and all that stuff. And we were dreaming about things. And we just started talking about how much one person impacts everybody else, you know, that you don't realize it even like you're powerful. Everybody, you know, that you talk to is unique. Their life perspective, their their uh, life experience, their creativity, their critical thinking and all that stuff. It, and it's just you know, we take it for granted. Sometimes we're all bustling around. So, but you start and think about how much one person has an impact on other people. And so that's kind of how we started that conversation. And it was pretty heavy. <clears throat> and, uh, but anyway, as we started putting it together and we, and we took the music to the band, man, it was really cool. The the build up part where it goes in the scream and all that stuff. And we worked all that up, man, it just, it was really cool to play it live. We got really excited about it and it just got a response, man. We, when we put it out on the radio, we weren't sure we had done two or three songs by the point that one had come out. I think wasted love and loves a bitch probably had already been out on the EP. And, and that one came out and it just resonated. And I remember Keith was saying this a minute ago about Malcolm Riker I remember the A&R guy saying he knew he was going to sign us. Brian Huttenhauer from A&M had said, I knew I was going to sign you because I, I flew to Memphis. And when I got in my rental car, I turned the radio on and your song was playing. <laughs> right. Uh, and we dying. said, wow, you know, yeah. that was, just, you know, I think crazy he showed up at our warehouse for a party that night. And it was just like a complete blowout, man. It was out of control. I'm, pretty amazed we never got shut down by the cops yeah. Yeah. <laughs> as soon had, as he got there he was like yeah we'll we'll do this right you had you had you know multiple what, people so cool. help you w- with some of those songs on surprise attack correct there was yeah, multiple... yeah we did okay thomas okay. thomas wrote quite a few of them he wrote hard times and being there and phantom rider and um you know y'all it was funny we we talk about this uh, in the beginning, that that kind of inner circle stuff in our band, we didn't we didn't want to co-write. We were kind of resistant to be just totally honest with y'all. We were, uh, I think, we were kind of knocking ourselves out of an opportunity at the beginning. But I think it's because we didn't have any confidence. We weren't sure what we were doing, and we kind of got protected. And A and M was trying to kind of open us up to the the opportunities. And they sent a guy. 
I mean, we trusted Thomas because we were friends with him. You know, I mean, we, that was a different relationship, but they were bringing in like outside people in our group. And I remember A&M sent a guy named Tom DeLuca down uh, that ended up writing guilty with us. Um, it was just on one afternoon, you know, and man, we were kind of little shits, just to be honest with you. He, <laughs> he showed up and we were like, man, screw that guy. He don't know anything about us. He's never met us. He's a stranger. We weren't thinking about the collaborative part of it. Would you have said that if they sent Desmond Child back then? Man, no, Probably. no, but Probably I, I don't know what up, we yeah. just said. I mean, we know who he is and his name and everything would have preceded him. But I think it was just more we were kind of had a little bit of fear in us. We didn't want to do something that we would say something wrong or we weren't. They would figure out maybe it was an imposter syndrome or something. We didn't know what to call it back then, but. We were kind of worried, you know, but we, the other two guys, the rhythm section, you know, we were at the studio or whatever. And they said, hey, we're going to go next door to Molly's and get a drink or whatever. And Keith and I were talking. And we said, hey, man, let's just go in there and see what the guys, you know, he seems nice. Let's just go in there and talk to him and tell him maybe it's not going to work or whatever. But as soon as we got in there with him, this guy was super amazing. I mean, he was yeah. super talented. He, he just and all of a sudden it made you realize. And I tell kids this all the time now when I'm talking to them is uh, collaborating with people is so powerful because you start seeing their process, the protocol of writing and all that kind of stuff. We weren't really there mentally for all that. We just said, Hey, there's this outside person kind of intruding into our tour tour world, you know, yeah, all right. of a sudden. but all of a sudden, by the end of that afternoon, we were like, Hey, we have something kind of cool. Mm-hmm. Um, you uh, Were you playing walking shoes live before the album came out? Was it a local hit? Was it, what did it, mm-mm. I don't think so. Keith, we didn't. Ha- I mean, we might have had it right before the record came out, but it was really late in the process. It was like right at the deadline almost. Did you guys Wasn't want it Keith- to be the single? I, I think once we wrote that one and it, man, as far as I remember, that was one of those that we wrote really quick, like mm-hmm. super fast, sitting at a, an apartment I lived in, I think, out on the yeah and you know, it's just kind of like as soon as we heard it when we did a demo, we were like, Yeah, this is definitely the song. You know, yeah, I think we could all just, I remember Keith. Tell just you know, we all kind of knew that would be the first single as soon as we wrote it. I think you did, okay, yeah, I feel yeah. like that way anyway. I mean, I don't know if anybody else did. It was I remember funny. Keith doing that riff and just going, What is that? I was laying in the floor, I had like a pad. I was kind of scribbling around trying to think of some lyrics or something. And he started playing it and we were like, what is that? What is this thing you got going on? And it was interesting and it was really different than anything else on the record. And we said, wow, this one feels kind of cool. Cause it's got like uh it had the Memphis flavor to it. You know, it's funny what I, when I was listening to it today, I was thinking about, uh, you know, obviously that opening acoustic thing was much more, the word I would say is authentic um, to a Southern blues thing. A lot, a lot of, a lot of the uh, scene was moving to kind of have some of that Southern blues influence in it. Um, I, I don't know if you guys know, I play uh, in a band with Eric Brittingham from Cinderella and oh yeah, and Eric, Eric long cold winter record went real, you know, the first Cinderella record was a metal record and then it went straight to that, that kind of blues influence stuff. But a lot of bands that started to do that 
there wasn't a, what I considered authenticity to it. I'm from Virginia, so I'm kind of a Southern boy myself, too. And, <laughs> and you guys know you can smell a fake. You, you know yeah. I mean? And uh, when yeah. I was listening to it today, that opening acoustic riff it felt so authentic. It, it, mm. You know, and um, and I was curious because then when it kicks in, it kicked in and it, it had a kind of a Skid Row feel to it, which the, that first Skid Row record was an amazing record. I mean, it was really mm -hmm. And So I, I, I listened to that song today with a completely new appreciation. I was a fan of it when it came out. I loved it. But I as as you know, all these years later, as as a songwriter and a music producer myself, I heard it different today. And and just mm. hearing that uh, the southern authenticity to that that riff, and then kicking in and and still having the uh, commercial metal sound to it too. I, I I thought it was a great meld, and, and maybe I didn't appreciate it all those years ago the way I do today. I, it was neat to hear it today like that. Right. Yeah. Well, thanks. That's a huge compliment. First of all, I yeah. Speaking of listening to it now and, and hearing it differently, do you guys listen to the surprise attack now and and hear it differently than when you recorded it? Like, is there things that you say, well, why did we do it this way? Or, you know, uh, man, or do you not listen to it now? I I have very honestly, very, 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 very rarely listened to our music. Pat, after okay. we get finished, you know, I listen to it a lot while we're working on it you know and and honestly if i go back and hear something now it's for a reason to go back and listen to a solo or something like that but you know i it wasn't my favorite tora tora record mm -hmm. sound wise what was your you know, favorite one at wild america by a mile um just as a whole you know sonically i just thought it sounded really amazing um, but you know, the first record was just different. I mean, it was, it was a, just our first experience. It was, you know, I think, you know, we had Paul Ebersold and Joe Hardy. I think they were trying to figure out what to do with us. It just, it, it was, seems it's the most experimental thing I think we ever did, you know, just uh -huh. as far as, because a lot of stuff that, you know, they would say, well, we have this idea for the middle of hard times and there's this weird pumping organ fair light sounding machine thing and we're just like well Does, that sounds like a horrible idea but okay you know when when i was making my my very first record i was making a record in paramus new jersey um with a guy named richard goddard i don't know if you guys know him he produced my first record uh he uh him and Seymour Stein's owned Sire Records, and he was the guy responsible for Blondie and the Go Go's. Oh, wow. Uh, wow. And we were making my first record, and he sent the whole band out. He said he made us go to lunch or whatever. Just and he put a keyboard track, and he put a keyboard track on one of our songs, and then he. <laughs> And he brought us back and he wanted, he, he wanted, he didn't want the resistance because we were a lot like you were talking about. We, we didn't like the, we, we were our gang and we didn't want the outsider, even though he was this, you know, platinum selling producer, we, it was our songs and he knew that about us. So he sent us away <laughs> and he brought us in and he, he played the track and I loved it. I knew it was great. I knew that that adding the keyboard was the right thing to do. Did anything like that happen to you guys? Was there any kind of was there anything you resisted or didn't want? Did the record come out the way you wanted it to? Better, worse? What, what, is there any moment on the record that you hate, or is there any moment that you go, 
that is way better than I dreamed it would ever been. Keith, you want to go first? Or? <laughs> I, I, I'll let you, I'll let you answer that one. I would have to think for a while, man. That's a lot. Yeah. You know, we questioned everything. Yeah. I, I think remember. that's what I was fixing to say is we were kind of second guessing. I don't even think it's seven, second guessing. I think what Keith said a minute ago really nailed it. We were experimenting because we weren't sure exactly what we were looking for. And we didn't, we had never had any kind of experience like that before. I mean, we did so much, so many amps. Keith did so many different amps. John did drum, different drum sets. And the one thing that was crazy about this Surprise Attack record was we did those songs were in different periods of time. It wasn't like we went in and blocked the studio out for eight weeks and then came out with a finished product. We did this, that record over a year. And we kind of did it like, I live in Nashville. Uh, I've been up there for about 18 years and I've been in working in the, you know, for labels and music publishing and all kind of stuff. And to me, it was like doing demo sessions in Nashville. We would go in with four or five songs and we would cut them and we did them really quick and dirty. Like we would actually go in there like, after a session was over or something, we would just run in, set our shit up really fast and go and mic everything and go, all right, let's just get it down and let's listen and see what we think. And um, that was one of the things about being an artist that was cool is we could just kind of shoot in there. But we get four or five of them. And of those four or five, there would be one that we go, okay, man, now we got to beat that one. The, the yeah. whole next writing sessions that we're doing. And we did that in waves. So sometimes it would be four songs. Sometimes it'd be seven songs. Sometimes it might be just one song that we just go, we, we're so excited. Let's run in here. The very first opportunity we get. So all those were kind of at different periods of time. Like we said, walking shoes was way late. We had, you know, loves a bitch at the very beginning. We went in loves a bitch, um, dancing with a gypsy phantom rider. And there was one other one that was the, the shopping tapes, you know, that we went out yeah, to shop. Riverside drive, I think Riverside drive. That was it. And so we yeah. had those four, you know, and then from those four, we grew into those 10 that we had and we kept adding and taking and moving. And y'all know how it is too. With When y'all are listening to records now, when y'all are asking if you listen and stuff, the sequencing of the record, like sometimes we'd say, man, we're, we're really mid heavy. Let's get away from that. We need something up tempo. Yeah, or, right. you know, or we got too many ballads or we don't have the right ballad yet. You know, you're thinking all this stuff. And when Keith said we had listened and listened and listened, I mean, we had run that freaking thing in the ground. I mean, we just went and went, went because we want to try to get the best we can. Uh, When you said, is there stuff on it that you don't like? I think they did amazing for the the place we were as musicians and stuff. I mean, they, they, I remember hearing some of the first things that they showed us and I just went, Oh my God, this, is this us? This sounds amazing. Yeah. You know, when you're young yeah, and you when, hear your first record sound like a record instead of a yeah, demo. Yeah, and it, <laughs> the, the vocals that they did, the way the keys guitars, he had tried all kind of different guitars and stuff. I, I mean, curious. for me, stylistically, I, I did realize that I had a lot of growing to do in, in those records. And when I listen back now, you know, I was in a place where I never heard myself in the studio and stuff like that. And so it was very, it was very freeing and I had a lot of control and stuff. But when I went out to tour on that record, I had sang every song at the top of my register, like those 10 songs. And those were the only 10 songs I had. So every night it was like, you're going to go out there and you got to hit these notes every night. So I was real strategic on wild America. I said, I'm gonna start using that. So I think like dynamic wise, even what you said about Phantom Rider, the beginning note of that song, 
I'm like way up in my register on that beginning. And it was just, that's where, how I sang it. That's where I was when I was thinking. But when I think about it now, I was like, man, I would have saved that. You know, I would have started to sing it much low key and moving. And I kind of do now that I'm older and I'm, we're singing it and playing it a, a little bit different. Um, just so the dynamic is there and you don't kind of give it away right out of the gate, you know? Yeah. So I think it was more kind of like a learning process for us because when Keith said he loved Wild America, I know this is a, a story about surprise attack but it just those two compared were we had had so much playing experience by the time we got to that second record sure yeah we were totally we were a totally different group of people because sure. everybody had gotten better at their instruments and we'd been exposed to a lot of of other people we were super hyper focused on ourselves and then we went out and toured we saw people we played shows we listened to a bunch of different records when yeah. you said Skid Row and all those people, we were freaking out on all those records too. We were like, oh my God, these people are killing it. And so we had a much more kind of strategic plan yeah. when we went in for Wild America because mm-hmm. we had just had educated ourselves some. It, but it, but the whole experience getting back to Surprise Attack was it was amazing because it was such a learning experience. The 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 experimenting with your guitar sounds, John messing around with his drums. You know, when you when you said was there a battle. There was a point in time, and John said this in, in another podcast recently, uh, and it was so weird, y'all. Just talking to y'all on this this thing, um, it reminded me of it a second ago. All of us in the band have different perspectives <laughs> of what happened. It's so funny because I heard John on his podcast and how stressed out he was on the first record because he was playing to a click, you know, right. and he had to learn to click, and he didn't like it at first. He fought it. He was like, God, I hate this freaking thing. Because a lot of times, oh, yeah. drummers, a lot of times drummers are pushed to the side, and the producer brings oh, in a guy. You know, we were pretty close to that. <laughs> I don't, I don't think we were pretty close to that, but I know that you know, once they started talking to him about that, you know, he learned to play with a click track really fast. <laughs> you know, yeah, uh, you know, kind of yeah. against our will, but we were all kind of learning the same. Yeah, the same. That's thing, what got me so. That's what got me so tickled when I saw that. Pie. I was so focused on myself. I was like trying to keep up with what they were all doing. Mm-hmm. Like just as far as the song itself being in there, because we'd be in there at separate times. But John telling his perspective was like, man, you know, this is my gig. This is my record. This is my group of guys. I'm not, I'm not going anywhere. Whatever I got to do to get it done to, yeah. that I'm playing on here. And they're like, to play on the record, you're going to have to get on this click. And I remember being in takes with him. And he would be playing and he would just stand up and like knock his cymbals over and throw his sticks. Mm-hmm. And we'd go, oh, my God, what is wrong? And then was that the first time he's played on? with one? Yeah. Yeah. It was the first time he had played with one. And man, you would go put his headphones on and it was a freaking cowbell on like 10. Going, That's right. In his head. And I was like, well, no wonder he's freaking jumping up. <laughs> you have, to, you have to do it that way. You have to. Do yeah. It. You know, but I will say that, I will okay. say this. Once he got on it, he didn't want to be without it. And yeah, right. He used it with us live because he would say, Y'all's adrenaline, you get so excited, man. When we run out on that first song, you're like 10 clicks faster than sure. I mean, our our set's gonna be like 15 minutes. Y'all are like, you know, just we're right. so pumped up and excited. So he would rein us in, he'd wear it for the first, you know, couple of clicks of the song, yeah, knock yeah. his thing off. And then um, you know, I mean, I think through that process though, we were all what Keith said trying to figure our, our individual parts out. So it, it was challenging, but it was really fun at the same time. The, the people we were working with made it fun. It was kind of, 
nerve wracking. It was pr- a lot of pressure because we were spending a lot of money. You know, we were thinking about in there that it, this was taking a long time. Um, and the record company had, we had brought in songs and they would say, no, that one's not going to make it. And so there was, you know, they turn into these conversations where, like you, it starts kind of being personal. You're like, dang, man, I've really worked a long time on that song. And it, it shot, got shot down in th- 30 yeah, yeah. seconds. You got to on that stuff, man. Yeah. It's not personal. It's just, that's just business. And they're, they're thinking of the best way that they can market you and all that. But it, we didn't know that when you're a little kid, you kind of, it, it kind of hurts yeah. your feelings, you know? Oh yeah. It is. And, it's crushing when you think you've got yeah. a hit song and they don't, and they don't beat around the bush. Nope, this song sucks. Yeah. Great. Yeah. How, how about your Give guitars at the time? I mean, were your guitars spot on or did you need some help with those? Or Because I know a lot of times people come in and do the leads for different people. And, you know. No, I mean, you know, it, we experimented with a lot of different stuff. We, you know, there was a music store down the street. We rented guitars, different guitars, you know, Kramers with whammy bars. And just, you know, we were just. I had to, I have to ask because what? again, listening to it all today, and you were talking about all the different amps and stuff you used, and I swear, I swear that I hear the uh, old ADA MP1 in there. Did oh, you? Did you yeah. use that at all? Probably. Some yeah. of the clean channel stuff. There's, there's, I forget which song it was, but it has this kind of clean channel during the verses. And I wanted to ask. I, I mean, everyone in the world had that thing at that era in life, you know what I mean? You know, I toured with that for that whole album, but I, I can't remember if we had it in the studio or not. Yeah. I, I'm not sure, but I, man, I think maybe. you did Keith. Cause I think you saved some of those settings from the studio. Maybe so. Maybe so. That's yeah. a good, I mean, that's a good ear. Yeah. It's a game yeah. changer. Well, to be there, there was this one track I, and forgive me for not remembering which one it was, but it, the production, not the song, production had a very um, white lion feel to the verse. Yeah. And it was the clean guitar sound. Not, it didn't sound like a white lion song. And I just remember going, that has to be that. Cause that's what Vito Brada used was that. Right. Well, you know, that's why I ended up with it. Oh, so right. I had it afterwards. Cause we had the same management as white lion. Oh, right on. Yeah. Yeah. We sure did. And they were, mm-hmm. that's so, you know, maybe I didn't have it in the studio. I don't know. But yeah. anyway, um, I don't know. You know, with the guitars, though, I I don't know. I I overplayed so much stuff, man. I go, you, you think know, so? just too much, man. Too many notes. You know, I didn't. I didn't feel. I didn't feel that when I listened to it today. I, 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 I get what you're saying as an adult and 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 who as a grown guitar player. But when I listen to that record today, it was spot on with what was your competition back then. It was. It was. Is it was everything that Skid Row record was, or or the Dangerous Toys record, or anything like that was. I thought your playing and your vocals were spectacular on it. it was It was wonderful to listen to it again today. Oh well, cool. That's that's, that's good to know. I mean, I, I'm all you know, just like everybody's always like super duper critical of your own. Sure, sure, I get it. I just, yeah, I, honestly, I have no idea what it sounds like. You know? <laughs> I don't know the last time I listened to Surprise Attack, but. You know, whenever I just have a hard time listening to anything. Yeah, who? You know? who it, it's it's interesting to me that um, I I'm a giant Van Halen fan, 
And uh, I have a Van Halen tattoo on my arm. Um, I, I just, I, I live and die for it. And I always have. But when I was, um, when I, when I was a kid and heard walking shoes the first time, I remember thinking there was a Van Halen influence. And when I listen to the record today, it, interestingly enough, I didn't, I couldn't pinpoint what I thought was any influence. I don't know. I would not be able to tell you who your influences were in your, in your music. I would be curious if you guys told us that. Uh, you know, it's guitar, guitar wise. Anything. Yeah, uh, man. Well, of course, Van Halen. I mean, just all the normal stuff, man. Van Halen and Ozzy. Yeah, Randy sure. Rhodes, man. I love Randy Rhodes. Yeah, but you didn't sound like you were copying any I know. of it. I mean, because I can't play any of that shit. <laughs> I still can't. I never could. But Keith, you, know? you were more of a metal guy, weren't you? Yeah, yeah. Okay. In the band before Tora Tora, I, it was our same drummer, John Patterson. Uh, we were in a heavy metal band called Lycanthrope. Mm-hmm. And we were four, you know, headbanging dudes that lived together in a duplex and, you know, <laughs> hilarity ensued, <laughs> Yeah, I guess. But yeah, you know, I that's kind of was, um, you know, kind of like our magical mixture. You know, I, I kind of brought the crunch and Anthony's right more on the you know, ballady side. It's just, you know, it kind of worked out well, mixed yeah, well. Yeah, it worked well for a great album, great debut album. So, but yeah, I mean, just all the other normal influences. I'll tell you a killer guitar player that I still love that, you know, nobody ever talks about is um, Mick Jones from Foreigner. Oh, he's great. He's great. And Me and Brett actually tried to get him to produce one of our records about 10 years ago, and he didn't want really. Anything. He told us no, it wasn't no. his thing. Really? <laughs> yeah. He did something with poison years ago. And so Brett <laughs> called him about something and he wasn't interested. <laughs> oh well. Yeah. What uh, about um the sequencing of the album? You mentioned that earlier about sequencing. Did you guys have a lot of input in that? I think we were all the record company was doing it, management was doing it. We were coming up with ideas. There was man, I don't even know. There was all kind of different arrangements the songs and there was a couple of them that were floating in and out that we kept going is it going to make it is it not going to make it is it going to be a bonus track is it going to be go to japan is it um i think we thought about that uh quite a lot um the way that all these songs kind of fit together and it was it was weird too like i was saying earlier because we kind of frankenstein the record together we were kind of doing them at different time periods and so that would change the sequence every time we would approve mm -hmm or get an approval for another, to add one. Um, but yeah, I, I think uh, those first couple of songs, Love's a Bitch and stuff, those were early songs. I, I think that we knew those were going to be ones that they were kind of leading off the pack. That was early in the recording process and all that. So they, yeah. they were there. Um, yeah, I think it's pretty spot on. I mean, it's got a nice flow to it. Yeah. It yeah. Was, I, I can't even really remember the sequencing part of it but um you know i just had a thought of a crazy thing an experience i had in there i was by myself in the studio with joe hardy uh doing solos maybe to loves a bitch or something like that and uh 
and Billy Gibbons walked in. Ah. Like while I was trying to cut a guitar solo, man. You know, nice. and I was a kid. So that <laughs> yeah. was weird. I probably still had his picture on my wall. Yeah. You know, I was a kid. Yeah. It was just a wild. Just that whole experience was a mind blower for us. Yeah. Think, you know. How about when um okay, so when you're done the record and then when you finally got it in your hands, I mean your first record getting released, that had to be an amazing feeling for you. It was. I, I remember seeing the the artwork and stuff for the first time, and we were just like over the moon. We were so excited and thought that was looked so cool. You know, nothing like buying your own record in a record store. There's nothing like that first time you do that. Yeah. 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 Pretty amazing. Yeah, that was crazy. And and hearing it on the radio the first time, uh, seeing the video for walking she's on headbangers ball i mean we watched that every weekend we couldn't believe it and then yeah. you know one weekend you look up and it's like holy crap they're playing our video this is crazy yeah um yeah that was a why the whole thing i mean now that y'all started talking about the recording stuff i'm getting all these crazy i'm thinking about stuff that fairlight machine that was there uh that was probably <laughs> 80 or a hundred thousand dollar keyboard that when it came out i remember going in and um joe had a a a file you know a wave on the thing and i was like hey what are you doing i'd walked in from having a drink next door or something and i go hey what are you doing and he goes oh i'm tuning your vocal (laughs) and i was like what you're tuning and he goes yeah watch i can take this little note right here and he goes just watch me with this i'm gonna just pitch you right in and you know now comparably to what we have now it's nothing but back then that was a huge deal that they yeah. would just say hey, we want to fix this scream or something that you, you know rando um uh, part of the song um but they man they really they really worked on the record with us i and when y'all were saying i'm i'm very proud of that record both both of those records wild america and surprise attack they were uh they were patient with us and uh, we were trying to figure out our songwriting, everything that y'all were talking about earlier in the conversation. It was just a big step. It was yeah. so fun, though, y'all. I mean, we had like, the time of our life. It was so fun. And we kept getting excited the closer we were getting. The, when that artwork came in, they came up with the, the nose art thing. That got a ton of press for us, man. And, I mean, we looked. Part of our one of our promotions was we were looking for the girl on the front of our record. We would announce it at the radio station and say, if you look like this girl, show up at the radio station. And so they would, and then all the guys would show up because they wanted to see who the girls were that were yeah. lining up. So we had a lot of success going across the country. The promotion people came up with things, you know, to link into it. And I remember it uh being on Entertainment Tonight, we had some kind of promotional pin that went with the album cover that when you turned it upside down, the towel fell off, you know, and I remember right. them doing that on like <laughs> entertainment tonight and stuff. We were like seeing it going, Oh my God, they're talking about our band on the, the artwork of our, you know, new single or whatever that's coming out. Yeah. Um, but man, it was such a cool experience getting it and then just getting to go out and play those songs. I mean, I, we were laughing before about me singing so high and that, that was the only 10 songs we had, but man, we wore that out. We toured for two years on that, record yeah, right I mean, we just, yeah. we just mm-hmm. stayed out and we told AM we had never toured before so it was our first time to take off as a band we took uh the four guys in the band we took three of our best friends as our crew 
and it was like a little group of Vikings. We tore out in a 15 pastor band <laughs> and the A&R guy rode with us from Memphis to uh, Manhattan. He said, I want to see your face the first time you see the lights of Manhattan. And I don't even know <laughs> if we stopped. I don't even know if we stopped. I think we just put the gas on and drove 20 hours because we were like, we're going to New York. I mean, we had <laughs> right. car, everybody's packed in there and we were just like on a mission, you know? Right. And, uh, it was just so cool to to share it with everybody, those four, and for it to still be us four doing it together. You know, this, we don't take that for, yeah, for granted. That, that doesn't happen much now. Same yeah. four guys. Yeah. I yeah. mean, we all went to high school together, you know, and we've raised our kids. We kind of pull back. We've always been kind of family oriented and family first, and sure. we all needed to kind of pull back at different times. Mm. But, um, you know, that record was just so fun. I think it was just such a growing experience for all of us man you learned a lot about yourself you learned a lot about other people you know and working together and trying to do something together and you know everybody's got their little quirky things that they do and all that kind of stuff and you had you know figure out how to make things work you know yeah yeah and uh and then you just gel you know all of a sudden when all that stuff comes together and you get something really great that you like and that's really good and you just go wow we did it man we kind of all powered into this thing yeah. Well, so, it was great. it's great. And it's great that you're still doing it all. It's great. Guys, I appreciate it. Um, thank you so much for talking about Surprise Attack. Yeah. Hey, man, thank y'all for giving us a platform and and people to talk to. We just appreciate y'all letting us come on here. And we definitely want to stay in touch with you guys. Yeah, Please. of Absolutely. course. Yeah. All right, guys. Thank you so much for having us. And thank you for having Surprise attack is your very first album that you wanted to talk about on your new yes, show sir. right on we appreciate it great guys thank you 